Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 22 to 27. Our sermon passage picks up where we left off last week at 2 Samuel, chapter 21, verses 15 to 22. I very nearly named this sermon Goliath Part 2, or Goliath 2, the second part. Some of you will get that reference, others of you may not. But I decided that might take away from what I think is uh, at least a major emphasis of the book, and so uh, went with the lamp of Israel. Again, Revelation 21, 22 to 27 is our, is our scripture reading, and our sermon passage is 2 Samuel 21, verses 15 to 22. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Please give your full attention to it as it is now to be read. Revelation 21, 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now turning to our sermon passage, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 to 22. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jar Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also was descended from the, from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath. And they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord, again for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light upon our path. We thank you that it illuminates, that it exposes, and that it gives to us the revelation of yourself. You show us yourself in your word. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would show us yourself in this portion of your word today. Please guide us in our understanding. Help us to understand you. Help us to know you better. Help us to glorify you even more because we know you more. Help us, O Lord, also to know ourselves to understand who we are in light of who, who, who you are and what you have done for us. 
We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, in our passage this morning, the author of 2 Samuel continues his wrap-up of David's reign as king. You remember that in last week's passage, David dealt with an old crime that Saul had committed against the Gibeonites, with whom Joshua had made a covenant hundreds of years before. And in this week's passage, the author gives an account of some of David's mighty men in certain battles against the Philistines. Now, in chapter 23, following David's song of deliverance, a.k.a. Psalm 18, the author resumes his account of David's mighty men, chronicling more of their victories in battle against the Philistines and other Canaanites who dwelled in the Promised Land. Now, as with last week's passage, it's difficult to know exactly when these fights in our passage this morning took place, but most likely it gives further detail to the summaries of battles against the Philistines in 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 8. That's not certain. We don't know exactly when these battles took place. But sometime after David was king, sometime at some point in the history of his service as king of Israel. And our passage this morning contains four brief accounts of four of David's men defeating four different Philistine giants. And in each case, David's men were vastly outmatched and should have been defeated in close quarters melee fighting. But each prevailed over the giant that he fought. Of particular note is the fact that in the first battle, mentioned in verse 15, David grew weary in the fight. And his men told him in verse 17, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. But as David makes clear in chapter 23, verse 29 in his song, he says there, that Yahweh is his lamp. He says the one who lightens his darkness is Yahweh. However, his his men seem to understand that if David was killed in battle, his royal line might not continue on. The children he had already had might not live to adulthood. It's very likely that at this point, uh, Solomon had not been born to Bathsheba. The Lord had made a promise to David that he would establish his throne forever in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. And the men seem to have taken this promise to heart, not wanting David to perish. And so as Dale Davis puts it in his commentary, the stakes were too high, the risk too great. Should David's life be snuffed out in battle? Uh, uh, should David's life be snuffed out in battle, Israel would flounder in darkness and confusion. King David's life means light for Israel. His death would spell disaster. As we make our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to consider this thought. David was the lamp of Israel, but Jesus is the light of the world. And it is through the lamp of David that the light of Jesus shines. Let me say that again. David was the lamp of Israel, but Jesus is the light of the world. And it is through the lamp of David that the light of Jesus shines. The sermon has three parts. The first, put on the bench. The second, David's giant slayers. And the third, the battle is the Lord's. Again, the first part of the sermon, put on the bench. The second, David's giant slayers. And the third, the battle is the Lord's. So let's look at the first part of the sermon today, put on the bench. Verse 15 says that there was war again with the Philistines. David and his men went out. They went down, it says, down from the hill country near Jerusalem, down to the plains uh, where the Philistines were still living, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. 
Now, weariness and David are not two words that have been seen together up to this point in Samuel. David has seemed indefatigable, if not uh, not nearly omnipotent up to this point. But in fact, David grew weary. David was human. And one of his enemies, Ishbi Benob, wanted to take advantage of his weariness. Verse 16 describes Ishbi Benob as one of the descendants of the giants who had a spear, probably speaking of the spear, uh, the spearhead here, that weighed over seven pounds. Spears themselves weren't made of bronze. The shafts weren't. The heads were. And it weighed over seven pounds. It was a, uh, a large spearhead. And it says that he was armed with a new weapon. The Hebrew had, there doesn't have the word sword. That's been supplied by English translators. He had this new weapon and he was going to kill David. He wanted to take him down. Now thinking back to 1 Samuel chapter 17 when we encountered Goliath. Goliath there was never described as a giant. The word giant is never used in that passage. But he was described as being six cubits and a span tall, which means that he would have been over nine feet tall, putting him in giant territory. It's possible that Ishbi Benob was a relative of Goliath's. The third giant is called Goliath in verse 19 and is called Lahmi, the brother of Goliath, in 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. It may be that all four of these giants were related in some way and thus related to Goliath. At the end of our passage, it says that they all were from the region of Gath. If that's the case, Ishbi Banab not only wanted to kill the king of Israel, but had an axe to grind against that particular king, David, for what he had done to Goliath, who was perhaps his relative. And so David's men who had fought with him and lived in exile with him for many years, they pleaded with him to sit the battles out from then on. David had already proven himself in battle. He'd already killed a giant. And that was when he was much younger. He had nothing more to prove, but a great deal to lose if he were killed. He was indispensable to the nation as their king, but he didn't need to fight up front in every battle the way that he always had before. Now this didn't mean that they didn't want him going out at all. It meant that they didn't want him in the middle of the melee. After all, 2 Samuel 11 says that the spring was the time that kings went out to battle, but David sent Joab, apparently, to direct the battle in his place. Sometimes coaches will take their top players out from the game if they're concerned about them getting injured. Say, if the playoffs are coming up, if they have already made it into the playoffs, they want to save their top players for a more important game. David's men knew that it was more important for him to stay alive, to lead the nation, to tell them what they should do in battle, rather than to jump in the fray and risk being killed. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, David's giant slayers. David's mighty men were mighty indeed, hence the name. And these accounts of four of them defeating giants is a great testimony to their strength and their abilities. When Ishbi Banab tried to kill David while David was weary, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, He killed the Philistine. And it was after this incident that the men swore to David that he would no longer enter into battle alongside them. In verse 18, we read that there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And here in verse 19, these are the only places where this location, Gob, is mentioned. It's unknown where precisely it is. In verse 18, one of David's men named Sibachai the Hushathite struck down a descendant of the giants named Saph. Verse 19 is where we get an assist from 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5, which clarifies that Elhanan, the son of Jare Oregim, himself from Bethlehem, struck down Goliath's brother, Lahmi. 
In verse 20, we get a, a description of a very unusual man. He had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. He was a man of great stature, also a descendant of the giants. And in verse 21, we read that he taunted Israel. So Jonathan, the son of David's brother Shimei, struck him down. And in verse 22, we read, These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now throughout the chapters in First and Second Samuel, which talk about David, he, for obvious reasons, is at the center stage with the spotlight fixed on him. He is the one about whom the girls sang, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so it's nice to see these four men, four of his men, being honored here. The fact is, David would never have been king without these men. And without the men mentioned in chapter 23. And David never would have been, become king again after Absalom's rebellion were it not for these men or men like them. The fact that they are mentioned by name along with the names and the physical descriptions of the giants they fought, it shows the high regard in which the author holds these men. To have your name recorded in the pages of scripture, not for some notorious sin, but because of the, the victory in battle, it's a great honor. A part of the training in boot camp, at least for Marines, is to learn the history not only of the Marines as a military branch, but also the history of individual Marines who have been commended for their actions in battle. Now, This served at least a couple of different purposes, to honor the person, but also to encourage those who come later to follow in their footsteps, to emulate them on the battlefield. Remember, when I went through Marine boot camp in 1998, they had just implemented this program called the Crucible. I don't know whether that's still in place or not. Perhaps some of you have, are aware of it. We were called crucible marines. They could no longer harass us in the same way. They, they couldn't haze us in the way that they used to. And so we had to go through the crucible. And we would go out, out into the woods, these pine, thick pine woods in eastern North Carolina, or rather South Carolina. And they would have pictures of Medal of Honor recipients on trees hanging out there. It was kind of strange. And yet it was intended to inculcate in the recruits this sense of, of, of honor and glory in battle and being willing to fight. They wanted us to emulate these men. And that's what the author of 2 Samuel is doing here. He wants these men to be honored. He wants them to be recognized for what they have done, but he also wants the people who read about them to be similarly courageous in battle. He wants them to go forth and fight. But we need to remember that these are just sketches of these men. They're not fully developed in 2 Samuel. Abishai is the best known of the four, but we don't know very much about him beyond the fact that he's Joab's brother. He's overshadowed by Joab most of the time. We don't get a very full picture of who Abishai is. And we're not told about any failures that they might have had in their lives. The author wants to encourage us by their victories. No doubt these men failed. They were fallible. They were sinners. They did things that were wrong. But the Lord, the, the divine author of Scripture, chose to focus on their victories rather than their defeats. David, on the other hand, who grew weary and wasn't able to defend himself against Ishbibanob, is one of the most fully developed characters in the Old Testament. And I don't mean that he's a fictional character when I say that. We know more about David than almost anyone else in the Bible. We've read about his victories, we've read about his absolute failures. And again, there's no doubt that Abishai, Sibachai, Elhanan, and Jonathan had their fair share of failures too. They are motivational figures for us, but the history of David in these books keeps us grounded. 
The author sets forth these four men and the men in chapter 23 as ideals, as men without blemish. Let this encourage you, brothers and sisters, when the history of your lives is written by the Lord, when you go to be with Him, you will have a record that is unblemished. You will have a record like these four men do. The record of your life will be one of perfection. Why? Because God is the one who writes the history. He will look at you in the same way He looked at these men. He will look at you as being perfect because you are perfect in Christ. You have received His righteousness as a gift. You are counted as righteous, reckoned as righteous. And so you have that to look forward to. They almost wonder if these men had a hand in writing these stories themselves. We know they had blemishes just like the rest of us. But David shows us what true blemishes are. David also shows us how great is the grace of God. He should have been cast out of God's presence a hundred times over. His sins were egregious, heinous, scandalous. The last chapter of this book contains his last great and worst failure. David was all too human, all too fallible, just like us, and God loved him anyway. God preserved him despite all that. God established his throne forever, just like he said that he would. God's promises to you and me are no less permanent, no less true. And what are the dangers that we as Christians, the Christian world, if you will, and the, particular, the Christian publishing world in particular, what are the great dangers that it has is when histories are being written about the great men of the faith, whoever they may be, whether it's John Calvin or R.C. Sproul, to name someone more recent in history. The danger is presenting only, only the pretty side, only the perfection the obligation for those of you would-be biographers, historians in the future, is to present a fair picture of those about whom you write. The warts and all picture. That's what's truly encouraging to Christians. That's what God does with David. He gives us the good, the bad, and the ugly with David. And in so doing, he gives us hope. If we write about John Calvin as if he is a saint while he was here on earth, as if he never did anything wrong, then we do a disservice not only to John Calvin, we do a disservice to ourselves. Because we think to ourselves, how can I possibly be like that guy? He, he's a saint up in heaven. We have our own saints, we in the Reformed world. We need to be very careful about this. God shows people as they truly are, especially those like David, whom he takes a great deal of time in, in writing the history about. And that brings us to the third and the final point of the sermon today. The battle is the Lord. The point that the author seems to be trying to make by including these brief histories of these four mighty men of David is that the, the odds were decisively against David's men. To take nothing away from David's battle with Goliath, David took him down from a distance he had the, the advantage of, of, of striking him with a rock, using a sling to throw it. He didn't have to get within arm's length of Goliath before he knocked him down. Then, and only then, he went over and took the sword and cut Goliath's head off. 
For good reason did he do this. You don't want to get involved in hand-to-hand combat with a giant. The fact that we aren't told anything about the strength and stature of David's four men, nor how they defeated the giants, indicates that the ultimate credit here should be given to God. Now, when I played soccer in high school, I never scored a single goal. Part of that was because I could not run very fast. I was a very slow runner. My coaches would never put me on the offense. In fact, I played goalie. That was the main reason that I never scored a goal. And I was a backup goalie. I wasn't first string. I might have been second. I probably was third. But the point is, never scored a goal in high school soccer. But I can remember the, remember the guys who did score, how they would relive moment by moment in great detail all of the events leading up to them scoring that goal and everything after and those moments surrounding it. Every dribble, every juke, how they made it past the defenders, how they took their shot, how it went into the goal. But here, in a battle, the stakes of which were far higher than a soccer game, no details are given. It's because the Lord caused these men to prevail over the giants. The battle was, the battle still is, brothers and sisters, the Lord's. The men, quite honestly, might not ever have known how they were able to prevail. They might have reflected on the moments of their greatest glory with sheer wonder that they weren't killed, much less that they killed their opponents. The next section of the conclusion of this book in First and Second Samuel, the next section, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing, David's song of deliverance, as the ESV puts it, makes it very clear that the Lord is the one who fought these battles and caused David and his men to prevail. And so our passage this morning, the passage following David's song, they serve as concrete examples of how Yahweh delivered David. They give the context for David's song of praise, his song of deliverance. They serve as reminders that the Lord is our God, that he fights the battles for his people. And we need to be reminded of this in our day just as much as the people in David's day and and the years following needed to be reminded of it. If God preserved David and his men, God will preserve you. Now you may be facing something in your life that seems just as impossible to prevail over as a 12-fingered giant. In fact, your true enemy is even more powerful than that. But there are things in your life that may seem to you impossible to overcome. But here's something to keep in mind. Here's something to give you hope. Your true and greatest enemy, Satan, has already been defeated. The light of Jesus Christ has prevailed over Satan's darkness. If you believe in Jesus, then you have died with him and you have been raised with him in power already. And the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is at work in you even now. You have been handed the victory, just like the four men in our passage. Now in Revelation 21, after all of the great battles have been fought, after Satan has been defeated, after he has been thrown into the lake of fire, John John in Revelation 21, he sees a new heaven and a new earth because the first earth and the first heaven had passed away. And he saw a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and heard the words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This new heaven and earth In this new Jerusalem, there is no need for a sun or a moon because as verses 23 and 24 say, the glory of the Lord gives it light. 
And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the passage goes on to say that the gates leading to Jerusalem will never be closed because it will never be night there. Meaning that there will never be times where it's unsafe for her inhabitants in this new Jerusalem. Now, the times have certainly changed between when David lived and now when we are living. One thing remains the same. God preserves and protects those who belong to him. He did this for David, through whom would come the Son, Jesus Christ, in whom was life. And the light, that light, was the life of men. He is the light who shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome him. And it never will. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful to you that you are the one who gives the victory. The battle truly is yours. We are thankful, Lord, that when we are surrounded, when we feel as though we will be overcome, that you already have overcome those who stand against us. We are thankful that you give us victory. And we pray, dear Lord, that rather than adopting a defeatist mentality, rather than having the notion that we can never have victory, that we are always weak, that you remind us that in Christ Jesus we have been made strong. Lord, we pray that you would give us victories over those things which so easily hinder us, that hold us back, that cause us to stumble. We pray, dear Lord, that you'd help us to rejoice in the knowledge that Christ is King, that he reigns supreme, that he has already won. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.